Hey, science nerds, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast where we talk about the coolest cutting edge basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode 16 of Beyond the Abstract. I'm super excited to have a guest today. Dan, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Derek. It's great to be on. Uh, I'm a MD-PhD student like Derek, but I'm a bit farther up north at Harvard Medical School. Small school in Boston, right? Some of you may have heard of it. (laughs) Might have heard of it. And like Derek, I'm also in my second year of grad school. I do computational genetics work, which basically means I sit at my laptop all day and have big data sets and uh, stay in sweatpants all day if that's better for me. So yeah, this is probably like the only human interaction you've had in like months. (laughs) Yeah, you know, the pandemic has really turned it into just me and my laptops. So we've become very close. (laughs) When was the last time you like stepped foot on campus? Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I really haven't been into anything that looks like a lab since the beginning of the pandemic since almost a year. Oh, wow. That's like crazy. Not really how I imagined grad school to go, but it's working out. A lot less free food than you were hoping for, I'm sure. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Do you want to tell our audience how we met? Funny story. Um, We actually met on the MD-PhD interview trail, which I guess now was like almost five years ago. And I was trying to think how many times we've actually seen each other in person since then. I think we saw each other once in New York. One time. Yeah. But we've uh, maintained a long distance friendship despite that. Wow, five years. That's crazy that we've known each other five years. Yeah. Hard to predict how the future would go if you told me five years ago that this guy in some, you know, some uh, MD-PhD room with other applicants, you'd be recording a podcast in five years. You're like, no, I don't think so. Uh, Pop quiz. Do you remember what school we met at? Was it Sinai? Mm -mm. No. Oh, man. Failed that one. We met at Northwestern. Maybe this is why I remember Sinai that I think I was late to get to the interview and I was walking just like the wrong way across the street. And you said something like snarky as I was walking the wrong way across the street. And I was like, wow, that guy's mean. I'm glad I don't have to see him again. And then here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that sounds on brand for me. (laughs) Yep, really does. (laughs) What's like the current plan? What do you want to go into, Dan? My research these days is using large human genetics data sets to understand common disease. And I'm really interested in neuropsychiatric diseases, diseases that you find clinic for neurology or psychiatry. And these tend to be really uh, poorly understood. And as a result, there aren't for many of them great treatments. And I think that why I find the field of genetics so interesting is that it has really powerful tools to point us to what's the 
biology that tends to cause these diseases. And then from uh, that mechanistic understanding, we can develop better treatments. Yeah, I think the field of genetics has like really exploded, especially in the past few years with like the onset of like new computing tools and and sequencing tools. It's really become much, much more powerful. Yeah, it's really a relatively new field. I mean, the first human genome was sequenced just about 20 years ago, and that took a decade and massive teams and about a billion dollars plus. And now we can sequence a whole genome. And I'm not sure what it is now, about an hour for somewhere between a hundred and a thousand dollars. And that's letting us create these giant data sets that let us find these associations. So it's a exciting time to be in the field. Wow. A hundred dollars. It's pennies. Unless you're a grad student, then that's, you know, a month's worth of groceries. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. And I think really fitting with the paper that we're going to talk about today, which is titled Complement Genes Contribute Sex Bias to Vulnerability in Diverse Disorders, which was published in Nature in May of 2020 by the McCarroll Group at Harvard Medical School. And you actually know the McCarroll Group, right? They do work both in human genetics, which is more my area, as well as taking the associations and really trying to dig into the molecular biology that you can find from there. So our groups uh, work together. So if I sound a little biased in favor of this paper, maybe that's why. I think we've all learned that the research world is really, really small, but it's nice to work with these groups that are really at like the forefront of, of their fields. For sure. In the title of this paper is Sex Biased. We know that a lot of diseases are sex biased in that some diseases are more likely to affect women and some are more likely to affect men. And one category of these diseases include autoimmune diseases. So can you tell us a little bit about autoimmune disease? To step back, these classes of diseases called autoimmune diseases and and their name involve the immune system. And of course, the immune system has been in the headlines recently because it's what defends us from COVID. And what's So amazing about the immune system is that it's this group of cells and molecules and structures in our body that has to decide what's an invader and what's us. And it wants to attack the invaders, but not attack us. And that task of distinguishing yourself from the outside is really amazing that the body can do that and also makes sense that that balance can get out of whack. And if the immune system gets too ramped up and by mistake attacks structures in the body that are actually ourselves, then that can lead to autoimmune diseases. Usually the immune system does a really great job of protecting us. But like you said, sometimes it just gets it wrong. And this is when autoimmune disease occurs. So we know that Two autoimmune diseases in particular are much more common in women than in men, up to nine times more common. And this includes systemic lupus erythromatosis, also known just more commonly as lupus. And another is called Sjogren's syndrome. Lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease. So what systemic means is it can affect really any part of the body. So um, it can involve the immune system attacking the joints, skin, your kidneys, um, your heart, 
So it can really present in a whole range of ways. And it's a pretty poorly understood disease as to what causes it. And then Sjogren's syndrome's a little more specific in terms of what gets affected. This involves typically the the immune system attacking um, cells that produce saliva and tears. Um, so it can cause dry eyes and dry mouth, again, caused by the immune system attacking your body. Okay, so we've covered autoimmune diseases, but there's another category of diseases that affect men more often than women. And this is a type of psychiatric disease known as schizophrenia. So schizophrenia is a disease of the brain that can involve a wide range of symptoms, but typically involves disordered perception of the outside world and of thinking. So symptoms that are often associated with schizophrenia are delusions, where you have thoughts that are not grounded in reality, or hallucinations, where you see um, things that that weren't there, for instance. And schizophrenia is more common in men than in women. So about 1.5 or two times more common in men than in women. So this is the opposite of the autoimmune diseases, where those were about nine times more common in women than in men. Here, it's the opposite, where it tends to be more common as well as uh, more severe in men than in uh, women. I feel like psychiatric diseases in particular are difficult to diagnose because of how they present. And it's not like you can really order lab tests to diagnose a lot of psychiatric diseases. Unlike autoimmune diseases, there's still certain lab tests we can order in order to try and diagnose them. That's a great point. And also, I think why it's been in part so hard to get to the root causes of some of these psychiatric diseases, because the way they're diagnosed is basically through a checklist of symptoms. And sometimes it's that you need only, you know, five of nine symptoms to get a diagnosis. And of course, if you have nine potential symptoms and you only need five, there are many different ways to get to that five. So that means that under the diagnosis of, say, schizophrenia, there are really a bunch of slightly different diseases, each with slightly different underlying biology that's that's gone wrong and has in part made it tricky to pinpoint what are the mechanisms that have gone wrong in a disorder like this. I think this is where genomics and genetics and a lot of the tools that have recently been developed really come into play in trying to figure out the biological basis of these diseases. So how can we use these tools to answer the root cause of autoimmune diseases or psychiatric diseases? I would say broadly with genomics, the question that it's trying to answer is what causes a disease? Of course, that's what we're after. And to understand that, it's, I think, a very reasonable first question to try to get at what's different between people with a disease and without a disease. And to get at that question, looking at genetics, looking at our DNA is a really great place to start because our DNA contains instructions for making us who we are. So if we get a group of people with a disease and a group of people without the disease, 
and we compare their DNA, then maybe we can find systematic differences in their DNA and the places where the DNA is different between people with the disease and without the disease is a pretty good starting place to look for what might be causing the disease. But the type of genetics and genomic work that you do is pretty different than, say, diseases that are caused by mutations in a single gene. Yeah, so I think when a lot of people think about DNA, they think back to you know their last, maybe their last biology class in high school, and what's often taught are what's called Mendelian genetics, coming from Mendel's pea plants, where we studied pea plant colors and shapes of the pea pods, and these are caused by changes in single genes. So it's pretty easy to identify the genes that are leading to the difference in the trait. And people like me would be very quickly out of work if the diseases that we cared about, for instance, psychiatric disease, autoimmune disease, heart disease, diabetes, were caused by a single gene. But it has turned out that for many of these common diseases, they're caused by the changes in many genes that work together. And this has caused is a really cool uh, group of collaborative efforts between scientists around the world, because in order to have enough statistical power to identify the subtle changes in the DNA that we talked about, you need not you know, 10 or 100 people with a disease and without, but you need thousands, tens of thousands, maybe a million people with the disease and without the disease. So what that's caused is the creation of these large consortium efforts to pool resources and really abstracted the work away from a single lab, but into these large collaborative efforts. Let's dive right into the paper. So looking at what this group did, it seems like in the first part of this paper, they look at one type of molecule called complement and its potential role in lupus and Sjogren's disease. What they did is they studied the genomes of about 7,000 people with lupus and about 600 with Sjogren's, and they found differences in the DNA that codes for a part of our cells called the complement system, and specifically complement C4. As we talked about before, the immune system is really complex in order to carry out its role in recognizing all the different types of invaders that are constantly attacking our body. And one of these types of molecules is known as complement. There's a bunch of different complements, like complement 1, called C1. There's C2, there's C3. There's a ton of different complement proteins, but they specifically are focused on this one called complement 4. Overall, complement proteins act basically like molecular stickers where they go around and tag specific invaders that the immune system is supposed to remove. So they can go around tagging like bacteria or viruses or cellular debris that needs to be cleared. What was super interesting here, they found that people with lupus and Sjogren's whose 
DNA said that they would make more of these C4 stickers actually had reduced risk for the diseases and is also the opposite result from what the McCarroll group a few years before found with connection to schizophrenia. Yeah, it seems like this C4 protein has been implicated in different categories of diseases that are, you would think, completely unrelated. Why might this complement have all these different effects? Yeah, so this hasn't been conclusively proven yet, but here's what the theory goes. With these C4 stickers in the brain, the thought is that having too much C4 increases risk for schizophrenia because it causes the connection between neurons to be too enthusiastically removed. And way back in the day, it had been shown that uh, the brains of people with schizophrenia actually have too few of these connections. So this was really a fascinating missing link. And then in the context of the autoimmune diseases, our cells are constantly dying from the stress of living. We put them through a pretty rough time, you know, being out in the sun, UV light, all the bad things that we... Being in graduate school. Being in grad school, sitting in front of my computer all day. <laughs> I think that's pretty uh, stressful for my, for, my, for my cells. And the thought is that these C4 stickers, once cells die, tag the debris and tell the immune system to get rid of it, to sort of keep the house clean. But the thought is that if there's too few of these C4 stickers, then maybe the house gets dirty and that makes the, the immune system revved up and actually start to attack these parts of our cells that leads to the autoimmune conditions that they are talking about here. So it seems like here it's possible to actually have too much of a good thing or not enough of a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting that we now know complement four or C4, these little stickers might be playing a role in these diseases. But what do you think is the link in terms of C4 and the sex differences we see in lupus and Sjogren's and schizophrenia? That's a great question and really the key of what they were after here. So they hypothesized that this difference in the prevalence of these diseases, again, with autoimmune diseases being nine times more common in um, women than in men for lupus and Sjogren's and the opposite with schizophrenia being about twice as common in men. They thought that this could potentially be due to differences in the levels of these C4 stickers in men than in women. So they thought that this would work if the, on average, men tended to have more C4 for some reason, then that would increase their risk for schizophrenia while putting them at decreased risk for these autoimmune diseases, while the opposite would be true for women if women tended to have lower levels. It seems like in order to interrogate this difference, they looked in the cerebral spinal fluid or the CSF, which is fluid around our spinal cord and brain to kind of cushion it. What can you tell us about the differences they saw there? They actually did find what I just mentioned, that there tended to be 
more C4 stickers in men than in women. And what's really interesting about these results is that these differences tended to be the biggest right around the ages when the sex bias between these diseases is also the biggest. So right in your 20s and 30s. I found it super interesting that these differences in C4 protein also seem to explain not only the sex differences, but also the trend in age and prevalence of these diseases. Like that was super cool. Absolutely. It's always nice when the model works out like this. <laughs> yeah. Successful hypothesis. Yeah. What does this mean moving forward? Like what do these results mean for patients who have lupus and Sjogren's or schizophrenia and are hoping for some advance in treatment? Yeah, so I think that's really the question that we're all after here. And uh, stepping back, so this finding with schizophrenia that uh, having higher levels of C4 increased risk, this came out a few years back, and I remember reading it and was super interested. And the first thought in my naive mind was, oh, we should block C4 and this will solve schizophrenia. Of, of course, it's more complicated than that, but that would be the approach. But I think what we see here is that if we get rid of C4, then that actually increases risk for these autoimmune diseases. And I think what this is a nice example of is how interconnected the different systems of the of the body are nothing really exists in isolation like our entire body is really just a big juggling act constantly try to make other parts happy while defending us against everything that's like nasty in the world in medical school we learn a lot about homeostasis which is this big word for the way that the body likes to keep everything in balance and i think this is a Nice example to be healthy. We really want C4 to be in some middle range. Having too much or too little is a problem. And in terms of developing therapies, I think it's still possible to think about C4-based therapies, but I think it probably involves more nuance. And in thinking about what's the type of cell that you're going to block it in and at what time in development. It's not that we you know, want to block it in the entire body. Of course, also learned in med school that if you block an entire body, <laughs> then you might be susceptible to all sorts of uh, infectious infections. diseases. Yeah. But just the nice example of how hard biology is to hack and that if you don't do it carefully, then you're going to have some unintended consequences. In my mind, one of the cool areas of potential collaboration is with gene therapy, which is very big here at Penn. Within just the past few years, had the first FDA-approved gene therapy for blindness and also um, CAR-T therapy, which is a specialized type of cancer treatment, has now been repurposed for more than just treating cancer. We can target areas of scarring in the heart. People are also repurposing it to tamp down different areas of the immune system, including in autoimmune diseases. So, you know, this might be an avenue that we can pursue 
in treating neuropsychiatric diseases or lupus and Sjogren's. I think I'm always amazed by how many roles the immune system plays and even in parts of the body that you wouldn't suspect. I mean, we, I think we're coming to appreciate more and more how important the immune responses in fighting cancer and this relatively new field of neuroimmunology, the role that the immune system plays in the brain. And I think that a really big area in the coming years will be to get a better understanding of how we can take advantage of the natural ways that the immune system um, works on our body and to try to get those to work for therapeutic goals. Another really cool recent development is I read a paper that repurposed mRNA vaccines to prevent and treat multiple sclerosis, which is an inflammatory autoimmune neurologic disease. And we know right now that mRNA vaccines only recently became FDA approved for preventing COVID-19 infection, but now is already being repurposed to fight all different sorts of diseases. So that's really cool. Before Moderna was the COVID vaccine king, along with Pfizer, they were researching how to develop personalized mRNA cancer vaccines where your uh, cancer genome would be read and you would get a mRNA vaccine that would help your immune system develop a stronger response to that cancer. And the really cool thing about these mRNA technologies is that it's relatively easy. It's sort of like going into Microsoft Word and typing out a sentence, but the sentence is just the particular code of your cancer. And then that can basically just be printed, put in a uh, syringe and administered to um, try to encourage the immune system to attack the um, cancer. So lots of exciting uh, translational science coming up. <laughs> okay, so that just about concludes our discussion of the paper. And you guys know... When we have a guest, we always like to finish up with a few personalized questions. Uh-oh. <laughs> wasn't prepared for this part. <laughs> well, so Dan, I want to ask you first, for people listening who want to get into the field of genetics, what advice do you have for them? Because it can be pretty daunting to get involved in this type of work. I would say a few things. So I think that the field of genetics is at least the area that I'm in, is by definition a field that happens on the computer where instead of, I think, many people's image of doing science is what you do, standing at a, at a bench with a pipette and... Moving small um, amounts of liquid from one bottle to another bottle. <laughs> exactly. But the work that I do is on the computer and it's super helpful to some way develop a background in the um, tools that uh, we tend to use. So this is like a basic idea of how to code. There's a lot of like statistical methods that get used. So if you have opportunities to either take classes in those or even self-teach, you know, I did some of this research before med school and I hadn't really coded 
a line of code or done this uh, field before. And it really, you know, just like anything takes time. But I would say that trying to develop the skills that are used in the field uh, comfort with coding and statistics. Second question, what's the first thing you're going to do once this pandemic's over? Oh, wow. What an amazing thought. Um, if your I, answer isn't come and visit me in Philadelphia, I'm going to be really <laughs> Well, my answer... So I guess I should say, what's the second thing you're going to do? <laughs> well, I'm going to come and visit you in Philadelphia. And then the idea of going to like a concert with like 10 or 20,000 people, masks off, yelling, just like in everyone else's space, having a good time. Like that's just so hard to imagine right now. But when we're in Philly, we can go to some great concert. And thanks to our vaccines and to science, we'll have a great time. Who are you going to go listen to? I uh, am a fan of The weekend, and that got a little oh. boost during the Super Bowl with a uh, performance there. So either that or I'm sort of a Zach Brown band uh, fanboy, uh, and I've been to a few of their um, concerts. So this guy loves chicken. No thigh. need to <laughs> stop the trend now. That's that's right. What about you, Derek? What's going to be your first move? Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande, both of whom I've already seen in concert and just about died for because it was like so amazing. That sounds awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode. Thanks for having me, Derek.